family's attempt to eliminate sugar from their lives. Pretty drastic change. We're going to be talking with her on the program today, and we're going to be talking about your attempts, successful or not, to change your eating habits, whatever your goal is. Wanting to know what's happening, how's it going, and uh, what's been the result. How are your family and friends reacting? We're going to invite you to respond during the program several different ways. One is email, upraxcess at gmail.com. Upraxcess at gmail.com. You can call us at 1 800 826 1495, and we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. I have a couple of comments there right now. Uh, we're going to be uh, talking to several people who responded through our Public Insight Network. And you're invited to join that network as well by going to our website, upr.org, and responding there as well. Um, we uh, welcome in Eve Schaub, who holds a BA and a BFA from Cornell, an MFA from Rochester Institute of Technology. She's written about art for such publications as Camera Arts, Photovision Magazine, Vermont Life. And uh, she's written the introductions for her husband Stephen's published collections of photographs as well. Uh, she is a resident of uh, Vermont, where she lives with her husband and two daughters. Eve Shab, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thanks for having me on. So uh, th- let me just begin with this uh, tweet we got from uh, uh, Brianna. Um, she says, that sounds like misery, <laughs> giving up sugar. <laughs> that probably, I get that a lot. <laughs> prob- probably uh, sums up feelings of a lot of people. Uh, what, what was the genesis of this? Oh, well, it all started uh, when I was watching a, a YouTube video that I happened upon on Facebook. And so uh, in it, a doctor was making the correlation between uh, our excess consumption of sugar in the American diet with every major American health epidemic we suffer from today. So everything from diabetes and obesity and metabolic syndrome to heart disease and hypertension and liver disease and even cancer. So after watching this, he really had my attention. Uh, And I started paying a lot more attention to the presence of sugar everywhere I went. And, you know, in the American culture, everywhere we go, there's food. And everywhere there's food, as it turns out, there's sugar. So the goal was you wanted to eliminate added sugar, right? You can't eliminate all sugar, I guess. No, and it, and it's that's the thing about it that can get confusing really fast. Um, because sugar means so many different things to so many different people. And people would say to me, well, are you talking about carbs, which are simple sugars? And I'd say, no, we're not talking about that. And then they'd say, are you talking about blood sugar and, for example, blood glucose levels? And I'd say, well, you know, I wouldn't like our chances of getting through a year with no blood glucose. So what we were really talking about was added sugar, the kind that we use to sweeten. But we also use it for other things. We use it as a preservative. We use it because it's a cheap filler ingredient. We put it in things when we don't know what else to do. Uh, it can cover up bad flavors in foods that are supposed to sit on the shelf and last a long time. Um, there are lots of reasons to use sugar, but none of them have anything to do with our health. And you, you write in your introduction that, like a lot of us, you really like sugar. So this is Oh, yes. Uh, I loved sugar because, you know, I'm a longtime uh, cook and baker. Even as a little kid, I used to like to make cakes and pies, and I was very interested in food in general. And, you know, sugar just seemed like this perfect way to express love and affection for people, you know, that, that you want to express those things for, whether it's family members, your kids, you know. Um, everybody loves making a kid happy, and most of the time the way we do that is with, with sugar. 
Yeah, you, you, cookies, even bread has, you know, sugar in it, right? Even bread. Yeah, we found the most amazing places for sugar. I mean, I, I, I learned that uh, over 80% of the items that are for sale in our supermarket have added sugar in them. Hmm. 80%. Uh, amazing. And half the sugar that the average American consumes doesn't come from things that are obvious, things we know have sugar in them, things that are, you know, cookies, soda. You know, that's only half the sugar we're consuming. The other half are hidden sugars that are in things that we wouldn't expect it to be in. For example, um, chicken broth and beef broth and tortellini and mayonnaise. And, of course, a lot of people know about ketchup, but did you know it's in your gravy and your salad dressing and your cold cuts and your baby food? Um, it's It's... Practically everywhere. There doesn't seem to be a product that the food companies won't try to put sugar in. So before we get into some of your adventures along the way, I'm curious about, and I think our audience will be curious, how did your family react when you, I guess you sat them down, you have a husband and two daughters, where, you know, you want want to join me in this? At the time, my daughters were six and 11. Yeah, so what was the reaction? Um, so my husband, fortunately, you know, I don't think that I could have done this alone. And fortunately, my husband's very interested in food, too. And he, he said, huh, sounds interesting, which I think a lot of husbands would not have said. <laughs> you know, so yeah. I was very lucky in that regard. Yeah. Um, however, when it came time to tell the kids, that was a different matter. They burst into tears, both of them simultaneously. They immediately knew that this was something that was big, that was going to affect their life and everywhere they went. Uh, And, you know, when you say a year to a kid, they think that's forever, you know. So they they saw this as, oh, my gosh, life is changing in every way imaginable forever. Um, So that, I'm happy to say, in retrospect, I now know that that was perhaps the hardest moment of all, Mm. was when it went from being this abstract idea that sounded kind of cool to being a reality where people are being made uncomfortable and unhappy. And, you know, as the mom, I'm the person who's supposed to, you know, uh, wipe away the tears, not inspire them. Yeah. So this was... So that uh, was tough. You and your husband presented this as a a fait accompli, that we're going to do this, or did did the... Yeah, we did. We uh didn't really give them the the option of saying no, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which, you know, we were lucky in in our timing, because ages 6 and 11, you know, I'm pretty much in control of our food supply. You know, I do most of the cooking. I do most of the shopping in our house. So, you know, and then I, I, I needed to pack their lunches every day for school because school lunches are packed with sugar, unfortunately. So are the breakfasts, even worse. Um, so, so, you know, the only variable there was when they would go out in the world, with, you know, to a friend's house or to a party or to a social occasion. You know, those were the variables we, we ended up having to deal with. And those turned out to be uh, pretty tough. You know, that we had to come up with strategies for those things. So uh, you embark on this. Uh, what were the things you found immediately that were harder than you thought they were going to be? Well, it's funny because everybody, you know, myself included, assumes that the hardest thing is going to be the cravings. Like, oh, I really want this or that, and I can't think about anything but how much I have to have X, Y, Z. And, in fact, I found that wasn't the hardest part. Um, that, that happens, um, but it also subsides pretty quickly. I mean, after a week or maybe two, um, all the cravings kind of go away. And 
what was really hard uh, was the logistics of going to the store. I, you know, I felt like I had to bring my, you know, magnifying glass and my dictionary so I could read all of these, you know, uh, 47 ingredients that would be listed on a package and try and figure out what all these different things were to make sure that one of them wasn't sugar. And in fact, you know, what I learned is that I've now counted up to 56 uh, and I'm sure I don't have them all, different names, aliases for sugar. Uh, and that, that was key, was learning what those names were so that when I saw them, I could go up, put it back, and keep looking. So after I got through that initial period of recon, you know, and I knew, okay, this is the tomato sauce I can buy, this is the cracker I can buy, and nothing else, then it got easier very quickly. Then I spent less time than I had ever spent in the supermarket uh, before, you know, whereas I used to spend 45 minutes in the supermarket, and then that time doubled when I was doing my research, then it became uh, drastically reduced. And I'd go to the store, I'd go in, I know the one or two things I can buy, and I'd, and I'd get those things and come home. So are this, uh, these products have sugar substitutes? How do they get away from sugar? No, no, we didn't go with, um, you know, the, the, the popular sugar substitutes. We made a decision to stay away from those two because of all the potential, you know, sort of controversial side effects that can come from them. So everything from aspartame and saccharin, we stayed away from all that stuff. Uh, we thought sugar's bad enough. Uh, without getting into all that. And we also stayed away from another uh, common uh, uh, substitute for sugar, which are sugar alcohols, which I'm sure uh, some of your listeners may be familiar with xylitol and maltitol. These are other things that they put in. It's not sugar, but it's also uh, associated with, you know, gastric distress. Um, there are other potentially more serious side effects that are sort of not substantiated yet, but suspected. So we just went, you know what, we're not going to get into any of that. We're going to stick with stuff like fruit, you know. And, in, you know, yes, there's, um, there's uh, sugar in fruit, but when we had the, the whole fruit, we were also getting the fiber, we were also getting the micronutrients. And what that does is it basically acts as an antidote to the poison of the sugar, which is the fructose that's in the fruit. Mm. Um, I'm most interested in, in your daughter's reaction because they're, they're in a sense being forced into this, right? Uh, they, they don't exactly. have the, the, yeah. this cool, no these choice. cool socio, uh, you know, political leanings or, you know, whatever your motivations of your husband, you were, what, how did, how did they react as, as they went along? Well, I, uh, I was very concerned about that. And I, um, I tried to give them lots of opportunities to, um, you know, voice how they were feeling. For example, I suggested to my 11-year-old, Greta, that she might want to keep a journal. Um, so she did. And, um, and, and so in it, she cataloged the whole year. And, you know, it, it was wonderful to, she, she, she let me read it. You know, I asked her if it was all right with her if I read it. And she said, yeah, that's fine. So uh, I ultimately ended up being able to include uh, uh, several of her journal entries in the, in the resulting book, and it's this wonderful window into what an 11-year-old thinks of a project like this. And she's all over the map. You know, uh, at one moment she's like, this is, this is important and interesting, and I just can't believe that people don't know this information because it's so important, and it makes our family unique that we're doing this. And by the way, Mom, you're totally ruining my life, and I'm so <laughs> mad at you. <laughs> 
<laughs> so yeah. she'd be all over the place, sometimes within you know a single sentence. She'd be experiencing lots of ambivalent emotions. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, food can, can be an emotional palliative. It can be an emotional release. Certainly is for me when, I, Absolutely, when I'm stressed. Yeah. I, I eat the comfort foods, and there's a lot of sugar there. Oh, I wonder if that was especially hard. You know, times of stress. Well, yeah. I mean, it's we use sugar for so many things. Um, you know, we we use it to mark occasions, to celebrate. We use it when we feel good, but we also use it to cheer ourselves up when we feel bad. And it's gotten to the point where we sort of suffer from sugar inflation. You know, it's the all-purpose solution for everything, for happiness, for sadness, for marking an occasion, for expressing love and affection, for you name it, you can use sugar for it. And that's where we get into trouble. And that's one of the things I, I try to communicate to people in the book is that I'm not advocating that everybody go on the no sugar, you know, let's eradicate sugar from the face of the earth plan all the time. No, that's not at all what I, I think is necessary, and it's not, uh, it's not practical, but I also think it's not needed. What I think is needed is for people to have a greater understanding of how ubiquitous sugar really is, how in our food supply it is, and to sort of be able to take that information and use it so they can make better decisions. Hmm. So what we did was we found alternatives um, you know, if we were really craving or wanting something, uh, we'd find something else that we could have. Um, a lot of the time, like I used to always, uh, you know, in the morning I'll have my coffee, and people often talk about, oh, my morning coffee. That's the one thing I just couldn't do without uh, with some, you know, that I put in sugar, I put in honey, I put in maple syrup or whatever I do, you know, and I just can't give that up. Well, I took out the sugar, and I ended up using full-fat milk. And what I found is that, Lactose, uh, you know, in the milk has a tiny bit of sweetness, um, which when you're not eating sugar, you become more and more attuned to. You become, it's much more subtle appreciation of sweetness. But also the fat makes you feel satiated. It, it's, it acts as a comfort uh, to your system. You know, you take it in and you feel full. And that's something that does not happen with sugar. You take in sugar and it doesn't register. So you keep consuming. And that's part of the problem. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, we'll have more with Eve Schaub. Her memoir is Year of No Sugar. Uh, she and her family, her husband and the two daughters, uh, attempt during that year to eliminate added sugar from their lives. And you can imagine the difficulties there, but uh, some healthy aspects and some good aspects as well. It's a, it's a full adventure. We're talking about that, and we're broadening this out to you. Have you made changes recently or in the past to to your eating habits? Successful or not, we want to hear about that. Uh, What's happening? How's it going? What's been the result? And how are your family and friends reacting? We uh, sent this out on the Public Insight Network. That's a uh, source base of listeners who help shape our coverage of issues by sharing their stories and insights. You can go online to upr.org and click Become a Source and participate there. We're going to be talking with several people who responded following the break. Uh, Cowboy Ted Hallisey and Brett Menzi. Later in the program, Jake Chamberlain and Melanie Florence will be joining us from various areas around Utah. And, of course, the full hour with Eve Shop. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and university catering, exceeding expectations every event, every time, proudly serving the USU campus community.
The U.S. Supreme Court ruling sets back the cause of marine families sickened by toxic water at Camp Lejeune. The impact is that the people who believe that they were harmed or family members were harmed may not be entitled to any kind of compensation because their cases could be thrown out. Bad law, bad water, and a bad break for veterans and their families. I'm Steve Kerwood. That's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking with Eve Schaub, who has a very interesting memoir just out, A Year of No Sugar. She recounts in this memoir her family's attempt, she, her husband, and two daughters, to eliminate added sugar from their lives. Quite the adventure. We love our sugar. Eve Schaub says she loved her sugar as well, but uh, they, I think, were successful in their year-long adventure. And uh, that brought up our question to you and ourselves. That's why we're focusing the program on changes in eating habits. Uh, eating can be very emotional. Uh, it can be very ingrained uh, habits. And uh, so changing anything about our eating habits can be hard. So we put the uh, question out to our Public Insight Network. We got some responses back. We're going to be talking with a couple of people uh, coming up here. And then later in the program, we've got another couple of uh, great respondents. You can join the Public Insight Network by going to upr.org and clicking Become a Source, by the way. So before we bring in our guest from Public Insight Network, Eve Schaub, um, one thing that you mentioned before the break, I'd like to have you reiterate, uh, food around holidays. You you have one chapter heading. Let me get to this. Uh, you're ruining my life. Merry Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I took that from Greta. Um, she, she definitely was having a tough time around the holidays uh, because there's so many sugar-associated things that come with the holidays. And Christmas really is sort of like the grand, you know, finale fireworks display of sugar, uh, it, it, that's what it's become. And it can be the hardest place to get away from, especially if you're, as we were, traveling and visiting with relatives. And, of course, you know, we're the only ones who are not having sugar. They, they are not. Um, they're still behaving, you know, uh, as they always have. So, so that was definitely a big challenge. Um, and, you know, again, it's not just the sweets and the treats. It's in the gravy, it's in uh, the glaze on the turkey or the ham, it's in the coleslaw, it's in the salad dressing, it's in the cranberries. Now, you can make all these things without sugar perfectly well, but we don't have an awareness that that's something important to think about or do. Mm. Let's bring in a couple of guests who responded to the Public Insight Network. Uh, First of all, Cowboy Ted Hallisey, uh, who lives in uh, Bountiful. Uh, Ted, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tom. I'm glad to join you. We uh, had Cowboy Ted on uh, oh, a few months ago, and we did a, one of these programs on family history and genealogy. Uh, to remind listeners, uh, Ted, you, you're, well, your moniker is Cowboy Ted. You go around to give uh, speeches and, and promote uh, health and the like uh, to kids. And then through family research, you found out that you have Indian ancestry. So you're, you're a cowboy who found out he's an Indian. Yes. So actually, I can identify with what Eve was saying, uh, especially with uh, sugar that comes through alcohol. Uh, I found that out as a college student that uh, the alcohol quickly turns into sugar, and I actually had a predisposition for diabetes and suffered through hypoglycemia as a teen Mm. and really had to watch my sugar intake so I can identify with what she's saying and and probably tried to do five to seven years of of no sugar and now just kind of 
try to balance it out. And kind of the same I do with my foundation on on talking with kids about balancing things out. And as you mentioned, with the Native American background and some research that they're doing on alcohol and, and different things that uh, – yeah, the alcohol and the sugar uh, definitely don't make a good mix for, for anything. And we bring in uh, Brett Menzi in the St. George area. Uh, welcome to the program. Hi there, thank you. Thanks for, for being with us. Let's uh, start with Ted. Uh, so you've, uh, you change your eating habits to be healthy, and, uh, and, uh, but you say you've always tried to do this. You teach good, uh, kids about good nutrition and proper portion sizes. That's important. Right. When I go out and talk to kids, we try to teach them about balance. And, and then just portion sizes and have them hold up their fist and say that's a proper portion size. So if we're having an average meal, when you have your main course, it's about the size of your fist, your vegetable, your fruit, about the size of your fist, so that portion sizes help. And then I think uh, a secondary effect of that is through using your portion sizes, you're helping to monitor your uh, blood sugar levels at the same time and not overeating. Mm-hmm. And you say you try to have a healthy snack between meals, try to have the five food groups. And this is interesting. You try to have as, uh, twice as much water as soda. I do. I've given up the alcohol and the tobacco and, and the things that were really bad for me, but I, I still uh, enjoy a diet soda from time to time. But I try to make sure that I have at least twice as much water as I do a soda. So if I have a 12-ounce can of soda, I make sure that I compensate that with 24 to 32 ounces of water. And uh, then that also helps detox. Every month I try to go through a, a kundalini yoga detox uh, experiment, too, that, that just kind of helps to detox and your kidneys and your adrenal glands and different things. So there's a few things that I've learned, and, and some of those um, have come from me learning from kids rather than me teaching kids. When mm. I've been out there, I pick up different ideas from kids, and, and it's, it's kind of fun that you, you learn as you teach. Eve Schaub, I wonder a couple points there. Uh, this idea about uh, soda, we we love our soda. Imagine, I don't know if you and your family drank soda before you went on the no sugar. Well, uh, I, it's interesting that you mention that because for my husband, that was his Achilles heel. Uh, was he he was he's a big fan of Diet Dr Pepper. Oh my goodness! And he would have several of them over the course of a normal day uh, at that time. And so we, everybody in the family, was able to choose one item that they would still be able to have. Now it couldn't be like cookies or cake or something. But for me, uh, during our year, I wanted to still be able to have wine. So wine does have an infinitesimally small amount of fructose, but it's there. And that was my exception. For Steve, my husband, it was diet soda. And for the kids, uh, I encouraged them to choose uh, all fruit jam, you know, because then we could still make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and mm. things like that. Now, uh, Cowboy Ted mentioned uh, he learned things from the kids. Did, did you learn things from your kids during this year? Oh, absolutely. I think that he makes a really excellent point. It's amazing the things that you suddenly realize you're learning uh, from these small people. You know, uh, I, I was amazed to realize how resilient they were um, and how they could bounce back from things uh, that I would, I would balk at. You know, um, 
for example, they just got used to things very quickly. Whereas us grown-ups, you know, we've had a lot longer to get addicted and used to our, our habits, our customs, our manners of eating. And it's harder for us to break from them, I think, than, than for, the, for the kids. Mm-hmm. If you just joined us, we're talking about changing our eating habits. It can be very hard. It can be very rewarding as well. There are a lot of reasons why we do this. We put out a query on the Public Insight Network. Uh, you can go to our website, upr.org, click on Become a Source, and then join that network, by the way. And we have several people uh, joining us, along with Eve Schaub, uh, to tell us about changing their eating habits. Eve Schaub, uh, in her memoir, Year of No Sugar, recounts her family's attempt to eliminate added sugar from their lives. Right now, we're also talking with Cowboy Ted Hallisey and uh, Brett Menzies. Let's uh, bring in and uh, hear the story from, uh, from Brett. Uh, you're in the St. George area, I think? Yes, I am. And your purpose was to lose weight. That that mirrors what a lot of us set out to do. Yes, absolutely. I, I decided I, I wanted to lose weight. I was unhappy with the, uh, with how large I've gotten, to, to be frank, and I wanted to be more fit in changing the way I eat uh, was the, the quickest way to be able to do that. In addition to exercise, but eating, more importantly, was the way that I could lose weight fastest. So how, how are you going about this? You say you're limiting your sweets and your sugars, try not to add uh, too much salt. What, what else are you doing? You know, I'm, I uh, downloaded an app with my smartphone, and I'm tracking everything I eat. So if, I, if it has a barcode and I can scan it, this app called Lose It allows me to uh, track my portions and exactly what I'm eating. So I stay under, right now I'm at a uh, just under 2,000 calorie daily limit. So everything I put in my mouth, I am I'm looking up, I'm tracking and, and uh, making sure that I stay under that limit. And also I have exercise in so that I could reach my goal of uh, the amount of weight I want to lose by the end of the year. What's your success been so far? Um, you know, I've been going at it for about a month now, and I just weighed in yesterday morning, and I'm about seven pounds down. Yeah, and I think experts say that you you don't want to lose too much too fast, just steady loss, right? Right, yeah. From from everything I learned in college and health classes, it was two pounds per week is the most you want to lose to be healthy. So you're doing pretty good. Uh, Eve Schaub, I wonder, uh, in, in reaction, do you, did you use any technology? Uh, Brett's using this iPhone app called Lose It. Right. Um, we did not use any technology. In fact, we actually kind of went in the opposite direction. We ended up, because we have two young girls, um, you know, the last thing we wanted to do was to encourage anybody to not eat. You know, um, we didn't want to focus on numbers. And we were lucky because none of us in the family uh, was suffering from um, being overweight, needing to lose weight. Um, so that wasn't a problem we had. It wasn't something we were looking to solve. And we made a point to say we're not going to have weigh-ins. We're not going to have uh, blood work, you know, every 10 minutes. We're not going to focus on numbers. We're going to focus on how we feel. And that um, ended up for us being the right way to go. Um, and, and, you know, did we lose? And a lot of people always want to ask, you know, did you lose weight? Did the kids um, calm down? And, again, hyperactivity wasn't a problem we had. However, we did notice other things happening that were very interesting. I've always had trouble having enough energy to get through my day. I'd be the kind of person who midway through the afternoon I'd crash. And what I found is when I'm not eating added sugar in my food, I have plenty of energy. And I didn't even know that was a problem that, that was solvable. Hmm. 
Yeah, I guess you'd, you'd find things you didn't even know. Uh, Brett Menzi, we asked people in this Public Insight Network uh, uh, response, um, did your diet change influence family or friends? Your response was, you haven't influenced family or friends yet, but you continue to be influenced by your wife. Yeah, so, so my wife is always encouraging me uh, with, one, what she eats and prepares, and, and two, just encouraging me to keep going at it. Uh, because it, it, it's a tough thing. And so what I've found is that if I tell people around me that I'm trying to lose weight or I'm watching my calories, they see me scanning the barcode, uh, then they're not going to likely try to tempt me with, with sweets and other things, and, and they'll be o- aware of it. And it keeps me honest and keeps me uh, going at it because now I'm accountable to them in a way. And, uh, and if I'm not meeting my goals, then I, I feel like I, I really owe it to them to keep going at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that could be a powerful motivator. Uh, Ted, you, you said something interesting to the same question, that your wife has a family history of overweight relatives, and she adopted a rule uh, of no food after 7.30 p.m. Yeah, exactly. She has actually been involved with Weight Watchers on a maintenance type of schedule, and uh, that was one of their rules is no food after 7.30. And uh, my kids are kind of more cognizant of that than I am now, and and we try not to tempt mom, and we try to create that pattern for ourselves. And then I also find the kids looking at some of the uh, uh, fat content and different things on ingredients and, and helping keep all of us a little more honest. But it's it's been nice to have some of those practices. And the, one of the other things that my wife mentioned from Weight Watchers is that you don't tempt yourself. So you don't take yourself into a situation where there's going to be a lot of sugar or, you know, the same thing as somebody that's trying to give up alcohol doesn't go to a bar. I think that same principle works if you're not having snacks after 7.30 and you're not putting yourself in a situation where you're going to be tempted and have to have discipline all the time. And what's the what's the general outcome, Ben, with regard to your kids? Um, again, they kind of have that blood sugar issue from time to time, too, where they get a little irritable if they haven't had a meal, so they've kind of become more um, cognizant of of having healthy snacks in between meals and making sure that we have regular patterns of of times to eat. And like I say, that no food after 7.30 rule is is a pretty good one for them as well. And we've just found that they're making the choices on their own. We don't have to bring them up, and it's kind of like we mentioned already, sometimes the kids are teaching us and and they're helping us to be more aware of what's going on because they're making these decisions on their own and then sharing them with us. Uh, and finally, with Brett, what's the outcome been on on, on your family and, and friends? Perhaps you've mentioned that you're you're making progress in your diet, so congratulations. What's uh, what's been the effect on people around you? things 
out and keep things replenished and hydrated. So I drink about a gallon every day, a gallon of water. Uh, and I realize that may be in excess for a lot of people, but uh, drink plenty of clear fluids and it will really help you uh, to not be so hungry and desire those sweets. And you say you travel a lot, and that that's got to yes, be that's got to be tough to stay on your dad. It, it is, and I'm I'm leaving again tomorrow morning, and so I'm a little nervous <laughs> about the trip. But uh, you know, I'm, I'm planning on going to the store when I reach my destination and, and buying a, some V8 to to use as a snack. So I'm, and uh, having some good vegetables getting into me because it's harder to get vegetables when I'm traveling. And, uh, you know, and I'll use some salads and things of that nature to help me. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, good luck to you with your with your dad. Thank you very much. Yeah. And uh, you, Tom and Eve. Brett, Brett Menzi uh, from St. George, thank you. And uh, Cowboy Ted Hallisey, thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate you uh, joining us. And you can join us as well right here at uh, 1-800-826-1495. We'd love to hear your story. Have you made major eating changes, uh, whether it be for diet to lose weight or just to get off sugar like uh, Eve Schaub and her family wanted to do, uh, or perhaps you're making a statement, you're becoming a vegetarian or, or other reasons. We'd love to hear your experience, whether it was successful or not. The number is 1-800-826-1495. You can join us uh, to, by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. Um, Eve Schaub, before we go to the break, I'm interested in a follow-up on, on uh, Brett's uh, nervousness about traveling when mm, you when you get out yeah. of your home routine um I, I don't know if you guys traveled much during your year but uh, that's got to be that's an added level of difficulty it, it absolutely is and um i i agree entirely it's it's it can be hard and it can make you not want to go anywhere because <laughs> you get you do get like oh what's going to happen what are we going to encounter planning ahead became key for us just just as he was mentioning you know okay i know when i get there i'm going to go to the store and buy x you know um for us you know it's gotten a little easier i find that you know just even something simple like an inconvenience store um i have found that it's become easier to find a banana a cheese stick you know some places they'll even have hard-boiled eggs now whereas a couple years ago when we were beginning our project you know it, it was a festival of sugar and that and nothing else in in the convenience stores along the way when we would be on a big road trip mm-hmm. so i'd have to you know pack things to go with us and when i didn't it was a huge problem <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned something uh, just a few minutes ago that, that struck me you said you 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 decided you weren't going to go all high-tech, if I can characterize it that way. You're, you're, right. you're going to test this by just a very simple test. Are you feeling good? Are you feeling better? Absolutely, uh, 100%. That was another uh, thing that I wanted to mention is that my kids, I was trying to find ways to quantify, you know, health because we felt like we were healthier. You know, I definitely had noticed this, you know, uh, energy that I had never really had before. And what I found with the kids was when I went back and compared, they went from missing 10 and 15 days of school due to illness to missing two and three days of school. Uh, so that, that right there to me said, okay, that's, that's an interesting measure of health. Yeah, definitely. Um, let me read this response from our Public Insight Network. This is from uh, Colleen in uh, the Cache Valley area. 
Uh, she has a very interesting change in her uh, in her eating habits. She said, right now I'm a raw foodist. I've eliminated sugar, most dairy. I had a tablespoon of shredded Parmesan in my salad tonight. Most grains and legumes. I've, uh, ha- I'll have oatmeal and processed food. I basically eat vegetables, fruits, nuts, seeds, superfoods, green juices, and smoothies. I began juicing a couple of years ago after watching the film Fat, Sick, and Nearly Dead with Joe Cross. And I recently went raw in support of my 23-year-old son, who, after seeing the film Simply Raw, decided he wanted to change his lifestyle for health reasons. He's been dealing with type 1 diabetes since age 7. He'll be going to his 11th week of eating raw on uh, actually yesterday. My own desired outcome is to remain as independent as I possibly can from our society's current medical system. I'm not uh, on any prescriptions and hope to remain that way. Uh, she goes on to say, and, and you you recount this some of these troubles in your book, Eve. Uh, she says, dining out is a big challenge, as there are no eateries that provide fresh, organic, gourmet, raw food. There's only there's one place in the Cache Valley where it can get green juice. Other than that, the only option is green salad somewhere. Many people suggest I start my own juicing, healthy food place, but she says there are complications there. Uh, another is finding really great recipes. So, uh, one of your chapters, Eve Shab, was titled "The Waitresses Hate Us." Yes. <laughs> and and that was interesting because people have asked me, well, why did you even try to go out? I mean, it's, it's, if it's so hard to go to a restaurant, uh, why, why don't you just skip that? And I was like, no, because we want, that was not part of the point of our year was we were trying to live our normal lives. And yes, you know, you can do almost anything if you decide you're going to go live under a rock. But we didn't want to do that. We wanted to still go to all the social occasions, participate in holidays, and we do go out to a restaurant occasionally. And it's a welcome break for me, uh, especially during our year of no sugar, because I was making so much food at home. You know, I was making our own bread. I was making sauces and chicken broth and gravies and salad dressings. And, oh, my God, I'm ready to go out. So uh, we, we, were, uh, we definitely had to sort of learn the right way to get what we needed at a restaurant. We fell into a pattern of here's how we ask, here's when we ask, here's the right questions so we get the answers we're looking for. And I'm happy to say that nobody was ever rude to us. I always suspected that we were their most annoying (laughs) table for the evening just because we had a lot of questions, Mm -hmm. you know. So that's going to automatically make us, you know, a little more difficult. We're deviating from the script. But um, people were really helpful everywhere we went, and, and we identified a couple of restaurants that really did make their own food, which not all uh, restaurants do, of course. Um, And we actually went to some restaurants where they couldn't tell us what was in the food because they didn't know. It comes in, it's already basically prepared, and the restaurant is just heating it up. Hmm. We're going to take another break. When we come back, we'll have more with Eve Schaub. Her memoir is Year of No Sugar. We're asking you if you've made significant changes to your eating habits and what happened. We'll bring on a couple more guests uh, who responded to the Public Insight Network, including a a man in Salt Lake City area who tries to not buy food. He he looks in the dumpster for food. He's he's had some success with that. We'll have a couple more uh, responses from Public Insight Network and more with Eve Schaub on the Year of No Sugar following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread in Logan. Open for breakfast Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and Saturdays at 8 a.m. Featuring a Coq Madan and Coq Monsieur with a sour duck bread, ham and cheese. Menu details at crumbbrothers.com. 
Hi, it's Lynn Rosetto-Casper. This week we're taking your Weber grill to a more primal state with the author of Smoke, New Firewood Cooking, and we hope to get you gathering some flowers for your kitchen, not for a vase, but for your salad. Join us. That's The Splendid Table from APM. Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. In her memoir, Year of No Sugar, Eve Schaub, my guest for the hour, recounts her family's attempt to eliminate added sugar from their lives. And as you can imagine, there were some adventures along the way. It turned out successfully. That's uh, Eve, her husband, uh, Steve, and uh, their two daughters. We're asking you what your adventures in changing your eating habits have been. We're going to be talking shortly with a couple more people who responded to our Public Insight Network query. Uh, that's a uh, source base of listeners who help shape our coverage of issues by sharing their stories and insights. And you can join this database and respond by going online to upr.org, clicking Become a Source. You can respond right now to the program at upraccess@gmail.com, or you can call us at 1-800-826-1495. Eve Schaub, I, I have a couple of friends with interesting stories. One, um, his plan for weight loss seemed pretty simple to me, very successful over about a year. Uh, he drank lots of water, he cut down on sweets, and he cut down on portion sizes. Ta-da! <laughs> and that, that seems, these things can yeah, be pretty yeah. simple. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, and I, I also wanted to make sure that I mentioned that although in our family uh, we didn't need to lose weight, so, you know, fortunately we didn't, you know, that wasn't an issue we were concerned about uh, during our year, The fellow who wrote the introduction to my book, his name is David Gillespie, and he's an Australian author, and he's written about this topic as well. Um, And he uh, initially came to be interested in it because he was extremely overweight. He stopped eating added sugar in his food, and he lost 90 pounds. And that was the only thing that he did, was he stopped eating added sugar in his food. He didn't go on an exercise program. He didn't, you know, control portion sizes. He just stopped eating sugar. Hmm. Interesting. I have another friend, a very interesting story. Uh, when she was younger, uh, she has several uh, children in the family. The mother got sick, and they couldn't diagnose it. It, was, it turned out in the end to be a, a uh, infection. Uh, but they tried everything sort of systematically. Let's eliminate preservatives. Let's eliminate MSG. Let's eliminate meat. And uh, over the course of some time, they felt like it helped mom. And the family, my friend says, still eats healthy after going through this experimentation. So there's... yeah, there's nothing like feeling healthy. Yeah, it's I mean it's it's the most. And then I've heard a lot of people say this: I don't want that thing, whether it's sugar or if you know you're talking to somebody who's got problems with gluten or other things. You know, I don't want to feel that way again. So that's a powerful motivator, and that's the way I feel about sugar. It ceases to be a temptation when you realize what you feel like not eating it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that's, that's success, isn't it? When, when yeah, you feel like yeah. not eating it. And yeah. you also, I will add, lose a taste for it, so that when you go back and then have the thing that you know you used to enjoy, you know, oh, the cotton candy or the banana split or whatever it was, you're like anticipating you're going to enjoy it, you have a bite, and you're like, whoa, that's way too sweet. And it's not appealing anymore. Mm-hmm. Here's and then a, you'll be like, well, I'd rather have a, you know, a nice fruit sorbet or maybe just a piece of fruit. Right. Um, so your whole palate shifts and things that are much more subtle um, become the, the things that are appealing. How, how long until you get there? 
<laughs> yeah, so, yeah good I'm question. on this side of it. Um, of course, I think everybody's going to be a little bit different. Um, but for us, the shift progressed throughout the course of our year. Um, and the longer we went, the more we noticed it, mm-hmm. uh, the more attuned our taste buds became to really subtle levels of sweets. You know, the sweetness in, for example, uh, a mashed sweet potato, would see, it would seem quite sweet to us. Uh, we had a recipe for banana ice cream, you know, that was just simply bananas that we'd cut up and put in the freezer, uh, leave it there for an hour to an hour and a half, and then you take it out and put it in the food processor or your blender and, it, and wait till it's this consistency of soft serve. It was, it's delicious, and nobody can ever believe that it doesn't have added sugar in it. Well, we're going to bring in another couple of uh, respondents to our Public Insight uh, Network query, and we appreciate uh, them doing that. Uh, first, bring in uh, Jake Chamberlain in the Salt Lake area. Jake, welcome to the program. Are, are you there? Yes. Yes. Hi, hi, Jake. Uh, welcome to the program. Hi. And we also uh, bring in uh, Melanie Florence, I believe. Uh, welcome to the program. Hi. Hi there. Uh, so let's start with you, Jake. What uh, you have a very interesting uh, story in that you try. Let me uh, let me just read it from your response. You say, "I try to avoid purchasing food. There's a lot of wasted food in Salt Lake City. My goal is to rescue it. So how do you rescue this food?" Uh, there's several ways, but mostly uh, I'm talking about dumpster diving, mm-hmm. um, which we prefer to calling it food rescuing because um, dumpster diving has a bad connotation. But you find right. food that's been thrown away. <laughs> So that sort of moved you toward vegan because animal products uh, spoil rapidly. Yeah, um, you can still find them, and and they're still good sometimes. In fact, uh, one time I found a bunch of uh, salmon that was still frozen. This was in the wintertime, so the the dumpster was still pretty cold, and uh, that was great. I I didn't throw it. I didn't um, avoid the salmon because because of some, you know, I'm not a vegan totally, but but most of the time, yeah, it's, it's vegan. Now, you say sometimes you invite friends along. You say some people are grossed out. Yeah, I had uh, two first-timers that were curious uh, last week, and, and we went for, went for it, and um, they were surprised that I actually got inside the dumpster. Um, but, but they had a good time, and we came away with some good, good stuff. And a very interesting uh, part of your response, you say uh, one of the outcomes you— uh, you find you socialize around food, and so that uh, food is a very social thing, isn't it? Yeah, it, it really is. Um, there are um, freegan potlucks around town. Um, I don't host them um, usually, but but uh, they're really fun. You, you can talk about where you got it and kind of the story behind behind the food that you found, et cetera, and, and it's usually healthy um, choices. Sometimes you get a, like a load of cookies, for example, or something, and that's kind of fun too. <laughs> Let's bring in uh, Melanie Florence from Ivan's. Uh, you have an interesting perspective here. You say at, uh, at home you only eat meat that's raised humanely, as much organic food as as you can find. What what are your concerns? Oh uh, well, um, I think since I was uh, really young, I've always uh, just tried to kind of eat whole foods, avoid processed foods. Um, just wanted to, I had a really good friend that was a nutritionist when I was in college and we were like always looking up food and I bought diet for a small planet and balanced my proteins without eating meat and all that stuff. And, uh, now I do, but, 
anyway, I'm, I'm just kind of like looking where is the food coming from and what is in the food. I've always been very scientific in my approach to uh, looking up what's in food. I got a book on uh, food additives because I wanted to know what they were. So I'm always reading labels. So I just kind of try to get down to the basics. Yeah, uh, and reading, we talked to Eve Schaub about this, reading labels, um, and, and Eve Schaub became sort of a detective uh, trying to find sugar. If you find a similar thing, you have to really become an expert at this? Well, uh, for me, is I found out when they started using high fructose corn syrup, I found out how it's not processed in the liver correctly. It pretty much goes to fat because we're not... Our bodies, this is an artificially made uh, sugar. Our bodies are not adapted to uh, processing that. And uh, what we really need is glucose, not fructose. So um, I just read everything to avoid high fructose corn syrup. I'm not like avoiding sugar so much um, because I know it is in everything. As long as it's not first on the label or second on the label, so it's kind of like the order yeah, yeah, you have to be a detective. Mm -hmm. You're right. Uh, Eve Schaub, um, Melanie, in her response, she says that uh, the food she tries to eat, they can be more expensive. Did you find that as well with your question? Yes. Um, it's really hard. You have to go to the organic. It's getting more and more, which is really nice, the organic section of the grocery store. And uh, I was really surprised the other day. I wanted to buy some organic squash. They didn't have squash. Uh, zucchini, they only had uh, yellow squash, and it was like, I'm hoping it was a mistake, but it said 243 per squash, not per pound, mm -hmm. per squash, and it's like, wow. Eve <laughs> 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 really you do you have this experience as well? Uh, it's interesting because that question does come up a lot. Like, do you have to spend a lot more money in order to avoid added sugar in your food? And I'm happy to say that the answer is no. I mean, of course, if you're going to, you know, focus exclusively on I'm only going to buy organic produce, you know, that, that inevitably is going to be uh, more expensive. Um, but if you're if you're simply trying to avoid the added sugar, you know, you're usually talking about, either no difference at all between the product that has the sugar and the product that does not, or maybe you're talking about a difference of 10 or 15 cents between, for example, the peanut butter that has added sugar and then the peanut butter that doesn't. So it's really just an investment, not so much of money, but of those few seconds of your time to turn it over and actually read it. And I guarantee you that when you start to do that, you will start to be very surprised at how easy it is to buy something that's not sweet, that has quite a bit of sugar in it. But alternatively, it's also easy to do a little bit more research and find the product that might just be right next to it that doesn't have it. Jake, of course, one way people can reduce their food budget is do what you do, food rescue. But there is a mm -hmm. stigma among among some people. How how do you think that can be overcome? You're you're recommending that the people, I guess, you know, try this if they'd there, like. There are uh, programs that um, go, you know, try to go to a say a bakery or a pizza place and have them donate the food before they throw it away to uh, some organization. I know Food Not Bombs is one of those. Um, I don't think um, dumpster diving is, is for everyone. And in fact, the, the fewer people do it, the more there is for the rest of us. Yeah, I guess so. I guess <laughs> but, so. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And there is some etiquette that needs to be learned, like not making a mess at the dumpster if someone wants to go out and try it, um, or not being a nuisance, basically. Uh, yeah. We don't want anyone to, to put a law against it. Yeah. Um, you're, but, you're feeling healthier, you say. Um, yeah, I think I think it's fun. I mean, I, I get out and ride my bike around to collect food. It's just, yeah, it's a healthy thing to do. I think interacting with food more is something our, our, I think our society does is getting away from. We, we buy things that are processed or fast food or whatever, and we don't stop and cook it or we don't chop it up ourselves anymore. And um, going out to get it is fun, and, and usually it's, it's fresh produce uh, that I usually get anyway. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it is healthy and um fun well we're just at down that, there. that yes that, go ahead. i was going to say that would be my concern would be the things that would be the most likely to last in the dumpster would be the things that would be the most processed you know mm-hmm. the expired cookies or or whatever and oh, so i yeah. would worry that you'd be getting too much into you know well that's what's good that's what's there that's what's still fine so do you so you do find uh, enough healthy produce and and other things because everyone throws away bread. But um, then you get sick of eating bread, and then you realize, oh, they throw away all of the organic, fresh produce that they, you know, they needed a new shipment of uh, produce in, and they didn't have space for this on the shelf, so they threw it away, and it's it's just sitting all together in an organic um, waste container, and you can just kind of maybe pick off the banana peel and find a nice orange or whatever, and, well, and all kinds of fruits and vegetables. Well, we're going we're gonna to have to end. We're, we're out of time. Uh, Melanie and Jake, thank you so much. For joining us, thank You're you. Welcome. And uh, Eve Shab, uh, it's it's been a pleasure. Year of No Sugar is out. Recounts her family's attempt to eliminate added sugar from their lives for for one year. Just fi- final twenty seconds. Um, but you, what's the final result? You you you've come out of this. You and your family healthier. We're healthier. Uh, we're happier. I also think we're closer because you know, as a family project, it really brought us together. Very good, Eve Shab. And uh, thanks so much for listening. Hope you'll uh, join us tomorrow for the program. That's Access Utah for today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Lyrics Rep, presenting tons of money. Aubrey Allington, a broken vendor, inherits money only to discover he won't see a penny. He hatches a hair-brain shim to fake his own death and claim the money. June 19th through July 31st. Information at arts.usu.edu slash lyric. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Bridgerland Audubon Society, USU Extension, and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. Established in 1916, the National Park Service manages all properties included in the National Park System. This system includes over 400 areas that encompass more than 84 million acres of land. These areas can go by one of 31 different titles. Within this system, Utah boasts one national historic site, two national recreation areas, seven national monuments, and five national parks. While the reason for some of these titles is self-explanatory, the reason for others is less clear. For example, what makes one area a national park and another a national monument? Most people, including myself, would probably guess that the difference is in size. 
And while this is sometimes true, the primary difference is the reason for which each is established, because these two designations grew from historically separate concepts. The notion of the national park, which was simply the idea of large-scale natural preservation for public enjoyment, grew in popularity throughout the 1800s. As a result, you can typically think of a national park as a spectacular scenic feature or a natural phenomena preserved for inspirational, educational, and recreational value. On the other hand, the idea of the National Monument arose as a result of the need and desire to also protect prehistoric cliff dwellings, Pueblo remains, and other historic ruins found by explorers of the American West and Southwest. Efforts to protect these sites resulted in the passing of the Antiquities Act of 1906. Therefore, a national monument is usually designated to preserve objects of prehistoric, historic, cultural, and or scientific interest. However, the Antiquities Act has been used more widely to preserve natural features as well, meaning the content of the national monuments can be quite varied, from wilderness areas to military sites to buildings and ruins. There are also a couple of legal differences between these two designations. National parks are established through acts of Congress, whereas national monuments are established by presidential proclamation. Administratively, the National Park Service manages all national parks, while national monuments, depending on their location and content, can fall under the jurisdiction of the National Park Service, but also under that of the U.S. Forest Service, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the Department of Defense, or the Bureau of Land Management. So it's not just the size that makes the difference. It's intent, content, process of establishment, and administration. The next time you visit one of Utah's national parks or monuments, will you be able to tell the difference? For Wild About Utah, I'm Anna Bankson of Park City. Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Bridgerland Audubon Society, USU Extension, and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.